you know, school rewards playing by the rules. And but school is not a, does not map onto life, per, you know, perfectly. You know, in school, you can't be an entrepreneur. You mm-hmm. you 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 are the student. You follow. <laughs> so they do very well. They have good careers. They you know they're generally very stable. And that's what you see when you dive down deeper into the personality research as well. Is the people who score high on the personality trait of conscientiousness, following rules. Uh, across the board, they do very well. They have, they they do better in their careers. You know, they, they it's one of the it's one of the personality traits most correlated with a good marriage, um, because they they follow. They do the they do the right things. But again, what happens when the situation changes? What happens when the world changes? What happens as in we all as we all know in real life when the rules are not clear or or are undefined or need to be changed? And that's where the issues crop up. What is going on, my friends? Thank you so much for joining me on another episode of Cut the Crap Podcast, where every single week I'm condensing a book down to its core golden nuggets, bringing the author onto the show just to discuss the golden nuggets, discuss their book, and of course, my ultimate goal, just to save you some time. My friends, I am sick. Sick as a dog this week. I don't know why they say sick as a dog. I don't truly understand that one, but oh man, my throat is on fire. Coughing up a storm, just trying to get this cold out of the way. So it's a good thing I got all my interviews out of the way this week. No interviews, just uh, a little bit of bed rest. A little bit of bed rest. But I have an author interview with you, of course. We have Eric Barker, the author of Barking Up the Wrong Tree. The surprising science behind why everything you know about success is mostly wrong. This is a cool book. Eric's a great guy. I had a really good time interviewing him, and uh, I hope you enjoy it. But before we get into it, just a quick reminder. Get your entry in for the free MacBook Air Draw this quarter. Again, all you have to do is rate and review the show. Go on to iTunes, rate and review the show. Take a screen capture of that rating in the review just so I know that you did it. Send me an email, ryan.caligariatme.com. And show me that you did it, and I'll put you into the draw. Thank you to everybody who already did that. You're already entered into the draw. And again, as a reminder, you're entered into the draw not only this quarter, but every other quarter thereafter. So whatever prize I have going on every other quarter, you're going to be entered for that one as well, too. So get your entries in, and um, we'll get you entered for the draw. All right, my friends, why don't we kick this one off again? The less I talk, the better. So this is Barking Up the Wrong Tree, The Surprising Science Behind Why Everything You Know About Success is Mostly Wrong by Eric Barker. I'll catch you back here at the end of the interview. Enjoy. Eric, so excited to have you here. Welcome to the show, my friend. Oh, it's great to be here, buddy. So uh, like I was saying in in the introduction, uh, this book's a little bit different than most books on Cut the Crap podcast because usually on the podcast, I'm able to read a book, condense it down to its core golden nuggets. I can't do that with this one. This one's completely different, man. And it's because of how you structured each chapter. There are so many good golden nuggets in each chapter, but there's micro nuggets upon micro nuggets upon micro nuggets of different pieces of research, stories, anecdotes that you pulled out. And I truly love it, man. I love how you structure this book. You provide different perspectives that makes you think on different angles. And, uh, you know, the amount of research that you put into it. Uh, I truly enjoyed the journey that I kind of went on with these stories. And I'm telling you, man, I learned a hell of a lot from reading each chapter. So for me, my challenge with this episode is to try and condense it down to its core golden nuggets. So what I want to do here is maybe go through chapter by chapter with you and uh, let's try to give a good um, 
a good synopsis, uh, give people a good grasp about what each chapter is about and what each of the concepts are about. But before we do that, maybe give us a little bit of an introduction into who Eric Barker is and uh, why you even started writing this book in the first place. Well, if you check on Google, Eric Barker is an actor who died about 25 years ago. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. And uh, I've, I've, yeah, <laughs> but I've, I believe now with the book, I've, I've, uh, I've recently overtaken him yes. in uh, Google searches. But I, I believe he was a much beloved comedian, but he's passed <laughs> away. And, uh, and uh, fortunate for some, unfortunate for others, I am still here. So, um, so no, I, uh, you know, I, I'm, dude, I'm flattered by what you, you said about the book. And I mean, that, that was part of my intention. I think we've all read business books where, you know, it's like it's one idea and it just gets repeated, you know, totally. ad nauseum. And, and you're kind of like, I get it, I get it. And, you know, I didn't, I didn't want to do that. So, you know, I basically have been doing my blog, which pulls, you know, I try to try to give like, you know, self-improve, self-improvement mm-hmm. uh, type advice, but that's as legit as you can get. I pull from academic research. I pull from, uh, I pull from uh, expert uh, insight and, you know, and try to give you stuff you can use. And so when, after doing it for a while, you know, people were like, hey, write a book. I should write a book. I wrote a book. And basically what I wanted to do is, you know, we've got all these maxims of success that we, we all came up with. We, you know, nice guys finish last. It's not what you know, it's who you know. You know, winners never quit. Quitters never win. And we don't know if any of this crap is really true or if mm. it's just pithy or maybe it was true and it's not true anymore. And so basically I just went down the rabbit hole and each chapter – is an exploration of, you know, uh, one of those maxims and then looking at the research and, and I, I do it like a, there's a, it's a dialectic structure. It's almost like a court case where basically I give both sides kind of their, their, their day in court. And, you know, for, if for people who are just skimming, I know, I know, I'm sure they get annoyed because it's kind of like, just tell me the answer. (laughs) And, uh, and, and it's like, you know, but on the other hand, it's like I, I want you to understand. It's like, okay, why would people disagree on this, or why might they say one side versus the other side? Because because a lot of these questions, you know, life we all know, and we all we all find out. I found out the hard way that these maxims of success, you know, aren't you know just hard ironclad, true in every case rules. But I think what's really useful over the long haul isn't isn't just replacing it with a new inviolate law that you should always follow because that that's that's not going to work but but actually understanding it's like hey this is why people might say quitters never quit and quitters never win but we have to see the other side what are the exceptions where did this come from and then we can actually as opposed to having you know laws which aren't real they're not these are not the laws of thermodynamics i mean you know it's like the laws instead of having some thing that we believe is true in every case you know we can actually say Hey, here's where it might be. Here's where it's not. What kind of situation is this? And make informed, context-based decisions as opposed to following rules and then shaking our fist at the universe when when things don't work out. So, you know. So no, I mean it's you know there's it's dense with a, with a lot of research. I try to lighten up, making it fun. But you know, hey man, trying to get to these answers on success <laughs> and basically playing playing MythBusters with the maxims we all grew up with. I love that. No, I love that. And you know what? To me, that was that's the beautiful thing about the book is how you did structure it. And like I said at the very beginning, providing different stories, different anecdotes for each side of the coin. Uh, to me, it just gave me a, a deeper understanding in terms of different perspectives that we might look at it from. And I think that's the beautiful thing about the book. But that's going to be our challenge today because listeners come to this podcast because they want to get the golden nuggets. So what I want to do with you is, again, we'll go through each of the maxims that we have here. And uh, we'll start off with the first one, actually. So the first maxim, should we play it safe and do what we're told if we want to succeed? So maybe what I want to get from you here is, 
maybe two perspectives, anecdotes, or stories to help clarify this point. You know, one perspective from those who play it safe, and maybe a perspective from those who don't play it safe. And who's more likely to succeed? I mean, what it really comes down to, uh, you know, kind of the kind of the the, the big the big takeaway from the whole book. Um, please buy it anyway. But the big takeaway from the whole book is, um, you know, is the idea of, you know, knowing yourself and picking the right pond, basically being aligned between who you are and where you are. You know, that's really critical. And so when we're talking about the first chapter, the first chapter is all about the idea of, you know, playing it safe versus, you know, versus go versus trying, you know, wild extremes or, or going your own way. And in terms of playing it safe, um, you know, what you see is when you look at the research done by Karen Arnold at Boston College, uh, she f- studied and followed valedictorians. Uh, and hey, this is what every kid, every parent wants a kid to be, you know, and that's basically the epitome of, of playing by the rules. And, and what you see there <clears throat> largely illustrates, you know, kind of the, 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 the point of the chapter. I mean, there's many, there's many different angles to take this from. But what you see with valedictorians is they do very well. But they don't. What they don't do is change the world or generally lead the world, uh, and that is because they are playing it safe. They're playing by the rules, and if you check all the boxes, you will generally do very well. But you're probably not going to remake the system or lead the system because you're following. You're 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 not leading, and certainly there are exceptions, you know. But you know, school rewards playing by the rules, and but school is not a does not map onto life, per, you know, perfectly. You know, in school you can't be an entrepreneur. You mm-hmm. you 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 are the student. You follow. <laughs> so they do very well. They have good careers. They you know they're generally very stable, and that's what you see when you dive down deeper into the personality research as well. Is the people who score high on the personality trait of conscientiousness, following rules. Uh, across the board, they do very well. They have, they they do better in their careers. You know, they, they it's one of the it's one of the personality traits most correlated with a good marriage, um, because they they follow they do the they do the right things. But again, what happens when the situation changes? What happens when the world changes? What happens as in we all as we all know in real life when the rules are not clear or or are undefined or need to be changed? And that's where the issues crop up because people who score high in conscientiousness, like I said, as a general rule, do very well in their careers. However, when they when they are unemployed, when they get fired, they they do far worse. They feel far worse than people who are less less conscientious when they don't have rules to follow. You know, it's very problematic for them. So, you know, and at the other extreme, you know, what you see is people who don't follow you know, the rules, people who break the rules um, on a, if you were to look at a bell curve, you know, statistically the outliers at either extreme, you know, that is often where, where they end up, you know, they, uh, they end up broker in jail uh, or, or, or at the other extreme, you know, if you look at the great entrepreneurs, the great world leaders, uh, they often, you know, they often broke the rules as well. I tell the mm-hmm. story. This was uh, uh, based by research uh, by a Harvard Business School professor, Gotham Akunda, on Winston Churchill. And basically what, what Gotham looked at, this was something I had noticed in the research on leadership. Part of the research on leadership showed leaders are essential. They're vital. You know, they're, they're really – and the other showed, hey, if you've got a team of A players, they'll self-organize. We don't need some figurehead taking the credit. Leaders don't – you've got half the research saying leaders are vital. You've got half it saying leaders don't matter. 
didn't make any sense to Gotham, and I was confused, so I was very happy that, that I, met, I met Gotham and saw his research. And what he found was there are two, two different types of leaders. You had filtered and unfiltered. Hmm. Filtered leaders play by the rules. They come up through the ranks. They're heavily vetted. But, you know, they don't make huge differences in things because by the time you get – so by the time you're up for consideration uh, for, CEO, for CEO of GE – uh, most of the candidates are pretty much indistinguishable because they've been vetted by the system so thoroughly that they're all going to do pretty much the same thing. Then you have unfiltered leaders. Unfiltered leaders don't come in through the front door. They come in through the window. These are the entrepreneurs. These are the people who are the, the artists. These are when, when, the, when the president steps down or gets assassinated or whatever and the vice president steps up, he was not elected. This is not the guy we picked. So the unfiltered leaders, you know, have not been thoroughly vetted. So they often do things that are unexpected. Sometimes they break the systems that they're running. But other times, Abraham Lincoln is an example of an unfiltered leader. Sometimes they end slavery and do fantastic, you know, world-changing good things. But what you see across the board, the lesson we need to take away from this is, again, kind of going back to that primary principle I said, which is knowing yourself. You know, if you are the kind of person that checks the boxes. Because when you look at fundamental personality traits, for the most part, over, the, over your lifetime, they are largely, not completely, but largely, they remain unchanged. A lot of major personality traits, you know, just don't change that dramatically over the course of a lifetime. Mm-hmm. So you can kind of say to yourself, hey, I always got straight A's in school. You know, I never got in trouble. I never got arrested by the cops. You know, I'm a reliable <laughs> guy. It's like, okay, well, then maybe you don't want to be in the most dynamic crazy, unpredictable environment where you're not going to have, you know, a good roadmap to follow. Mm -hmm. And on the flip side, if you were always doing crazy things and sometimes sometimes they worked out, you know, maybe you're a successful creative person, artist, actor, putting yourself, you know, going going to work for an accounting firm, uh, you know, might not be the best place for you. Mm -hmm. You know, you need to be able to do different things. So really, it's about knowing your strengths, leveraging your strengths, you know, in an environment that respects and rewards those elements. So it's it's not so much, you know, about creating yourself as it is about understanding yourself mm. and then aligning the environment with that. One more thing I will add to it is that uh, from Gotham Makunda's research, you know, these unfiltered leaders often succeeded due to something that Gotham called intensifiers. Mm. And basically... You know, whenever we talk about personality traits, uh, and this is something I go into uh, in depth in the book, we talk about like good and bad. You know, it's like uh, being reliable, being smart, being nice. Those are good. Uh, being unreliable, being uh, psychopathic. Those are bad. But what we often ignore, like I said, the issue of knowing yourself and context is that context often changes the game. In your interpersonal relationships, being stubborn, you know, is a negative. That's but if you're an entrepreneur, mm-hmm. you have to be stubborn. We, we don't call it stubbornness anymore. We call it persistence. <laughs> and so you not only need to know your signature strengths. Signature strengths are this uh, work done by Martin Seligman and others at the University of Pennsylvania. Those are the things that you're uniquely good at. And those are often you know, positive things. But intensifiers, those are, those are qualities that on average are negative, but in the right environment, they can become a positive. It's the stubbornness that screws up your relationships, but might make you a fantastic entrepreneur. Other thing, being argumentative, 
might might lose you a lot of friends and make you a fantastic litigator. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so you you so th- these are things you need to know about yourself as well. Is where are where are my signature strengths valued, and hopefully potentially where are your intensifiers? Those quote unquote negative qualities, where are they rewarded as well? And if you find that place, you got a much better chance at not only success but also happiness. Woo! Dropping bombs over here, my man. Dropping bombs. This well, is- I'm done for the day. I'll <laughs> yeah. talk to you later. Yeah, we'll see you later. All time right, time for a nap. <laughs> that by itself, I mean, it's really funny because while you went into so many detail talking about filtered and unfiltered and intensifiers and you know talking about choosing your pond. All those are, again, like I said, the micro nuggets from that specific chapter. And for me, one of the big takeaways from that one and knowing a lot of our audience who's listening, they some of them struggle with where they should be at in life. And they say, you know, I, I, I'm working for this big company and, you know, I'm just too creative. And, and, you know, they don't appreciate that. And you're right. You chose the wrong pond. Maybe you need to be working for a smaller company that embraces that, that embraces change. Uh, Maybe you're in the wrong role. If you're a creative person, why are you a lawyer? Why are you an accountant? If that's not who you are, then why are you there? And so this chapter in particular makes me think, and there's a lot of different elements and stories from this that, um, that I really, really loved that, um, you know, for anybody out there who's still trying to find their way or, you know, they don't feel complete contentment in their career, this by itself, this chapter was a really, really important one and uh, lots of really good takeaways from this. So the second golden nugget that I want to talk about, and this is one that we hear all the time though, do nice guys and gals, do they finish last? And, and what's what's the deal with that? Why is why do we believe that? And is that true? Well, it's it's really interesting. The, the crux, I would say, the, the crux of the uh, the research here comes from uh, Adam Grant at Wharton, uh, who is a very nice guy himself. And uh, and Adam uh, uh, splits people up into uh, three categories. He says givers, takers, and matchers. And givers are people who altruistically help others, you know, um, you know, not not thinking about personal gain. Uh, mm-hmm. Takers are people who try and get as much as possible and, and not give back. And matchers are people who try and keep an even balance of of give and take, have a strong belief in like fairness and, and, and justice. And um, and Adam decided to figure out do nice guys finish last and he, he uh, looked across a number of different uh, careers and roles and tried to see what happened where do the givers end up where do the matchers and takers end up and initially uh, Adam's research uh, was uh, was depressing uh, because he saw a disproportionate number of givers ended up at the bottom of success metrics and and if that if that was the extent of the uh, of the of the work Adam did it would have been a very depressing day for him because Adam is Adam is quite the giver um, but when he did a thorough uh, review, what he saw was the results were actually bimodal, meaning that givers ended up disproportionately at the bottom and disproportionately at the top. Hmm. So, so perhaps uh, the revised statement might be uh, nice guys finish last and first. <laughs> um, and, and when you think about it, at first it's oh, that's confusing. It's like, <laughs> no, it actually makes intuitive sense because we all know somebody who is a total martyr, who goes mm-hmm. out of their way for people, gets exploited by takers, gets taken advantage of, doesn't get their own work done, and, you know, and, and has problems. Mm-hmm. But we all also know people who everybody loves, everybody supports, everybody feels uh, indebted to because these people, uh, they're givers and they go out of their way to help others. They're always thinking about other people and everybody, everybody's their cheerleader because everybody says, that guy helped me out when I need it and That's I will right. – I will, I, I'll, 
always have his back. And so we, we both we've, we all have seen examples of both types of givers. You know, so givers can do, you know, quite well, um, you know, takers, uh, the, the critical issue to remember to remember in terms of, you know, is that takers and and I'm, it's a broad swath. You know, you've got your your narcissists, your people with psychopathic traits, your, uh, you know, your uh, your Machiavellians, <clears throat> you know, uh, those people do often do very well early on. In a short time frame, if you look at the research, narcissists uh, make better impressions on first dates. They make better impressions in job interviews. However, when you follow up uh, after a few weeks on the job, narcissists are regarded as, regarded as untrustworthy. Mm. After a few months, uh, narcissists' uh, relationships, their partners' relationship satisfaction tanks. Um, you know, so they do very well up front. If you if you smash the window and grab all the money, uh, you know, yeah, hey, at first, but eventually you're probably going to get caught. And that that's kind of the overall if it's a it, there's there's a lot of research in evolutionary psychology that talks about a short life strategy <laughs> where where if I don't think I'm going to live real long, <laughs> then then doing all these awful things might pay off in the short term. And hey, that's great. So uh, and people are always asking, you know, it's like when you ask people across the board, what's the what's the value, uh, the quality you value most in others? You know, what you often hear in many contexts is trustworthiness. And when people are dealing with one another, you know, uh, I think this was researched by David Desteno at Northeastern. You know, he he said uh, one of the one of the critical things people ask is, is how long am I going to be dealing with this person? Hmm. And that's one of one of the things that uh, that givers who don't want to be exploited need to take into consideration, which is, uh, I, I believe they call, they call it extending the shadow of the future, where when givers are dealing with takers or might be dealing with takers, if you can put more steps into the contract, if you can have more friends in common, if you can ensure that we're going to be dealing with each other in the future, then all of a sudden that changes that short mm. life strategy example you know, why do used car salesmen have the reputation they do? Because they don't think they're ever going to see you again. You know, why does mom have, hopefully have the reputation that moms do? And that is because your mom's going to be there with you, hopefully, till the end. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so for givers, it's really critical, uh, you know, to think about that duration issue. But even more critical, I'd say the fundamental thing is going back to that primary principle, knowing thyself and picking the right con context. Right. So before, in the first, kind of with the first chapter, hey, we were talking about the idea of what are my signature strengths and what's an environment or a uh, corporation that's that's going to reward those. Here, you know, we're talking more, uh, it's the same formula, but we're talking on the moral end of things. So if you're a giver, you know, select an mm -hmm. environment where there are going to be other givers and even some matchers, but not takers. Because yep. if you're if you're somebody who's always given and you're surrounded by a lot of people who are always taken, uh, <laughs> guess what? You know, that's not going to be a good place for you because once again, who you are and where you are is is misaligned. And there's a great quote I love from uh, Bob Sutton, who's a professor at Stanford, where he says, "When you get interviewed, uh, when you're interviewing at a company, look around at the people who work there because you're going to become like them." They're not going to become like you. You know, that's really like that. critical. We always, we always think about peer pressure when it comes to kids. We don't usually think about it uh, as an adult. But the truth is context affects us wherever, you know, we are in our lives. And, and the, the most insidious part is we forget that. So, for, for, so if you're a giver, hey, make sure you're surrounded by other givers. And the mm -hmm. research also shows 
that matchers, that belief in justice and fairness, matchers protect givers from takers. They do not like to see people exploited. So if you're somebody and you can't find, of course, that if you're a giver and you can't find that perfect environment that, that, that's going to be just surrounded by other givers or there's going to be a fair amount of takers, you just want to make sure that there are matchers there and that you're friendly with them because matchers are going to appreciate what you're doing. They're going to, they're going to pay back. And not only that, they are going to feel personally offended when they see takers exploiting matchers. And as a giver, you you will find yourself with a with a with a few bodyguards in the in the prison. <laughs> Let's move on to the next golden nugget. So the third one here, and this is one that we hear all the time. And Seth Godin started to reference this one earlier on, um, early in his his in his publishing career with the dip. And it's about quitting. Do quitters never win, and winners never quit? What's the deal with that one, man? Uh, uh, the, the whole question don't make no sense. <laughs> you know, it doesn't, no, it's, it's the, that, that is, a, it's a problematic question because the truth is, I mean, this is just intuitive. We all know it. If I, if I never quit anything, I'd still be playing with action figures and I'd still totally. be playing T-ball. Yeah. We, we all quit things. The issue is, you know, staying gritty in things yeah. that we know we should stay we gritty in, you know, when, when we really do want something, believe in something, realize it's important for us or our family. That's the question because we all, we all, we all get lazy. We all procrastinate. You know, that's the real question. So the, the issue isn't grit and quit are, mm. are not, you know, complete opposites. In fact, strategic quitting, quitting things that aren't contributing to your goals, quitting things that used to be valuable but aren't valuable anymore is actually the friend of grit because it frees up more time and resources to do what matters. So first and foremost, it's just that whole idea of, of, of quitters and people who are gritty. No, we all need to quit things. It's a matter of being strategic. But the issue with grit you know, is you know, how do we persist in things that, that we know are the right fit, that we know are important, although, you know, I'm not in the mood to do it right now. <laughs> that, and there is a lot of research. One of the critical things that you see, this is research uh, from uh, uh, Angela Duckworth and uh, Martin Seligman at University of Pennsylvania, is, uh, is really optimism. You know, mm. optimism is really is really key here because, and it makes intuitive sense. Uh, if you don't think things are going to work out, why would you persist? <laughs> if, I, if, I, if I realistically think this isn't going to work, but the problem is that pessimism can be a self-fulfilling prophecy into something feeling futile. And once something feels futile, there's no reason to do it. And the, pro the real problem is that the research shows when you, get a, when you get a number of strong feelings of futility, then that can lead into a global feeling of futility. And we have another name for that. It's called clinical depression, mm -hmm. where nothing seems to be like it's going to work out and nothing seems to be worth doing. So optimism is really key. And optimism is, we hear about that a lot, but nobody ever talks about, like, what does that actually mean? And uh, Martin Seligman did a good job, of, uh, excellent job, really breaking down what that means. And what that means is uh, it's the issue of, um, of uh, personal pervasive and permanent. Mm -hmm. Those are the critical uh, ideas here, the three Ps when it comes to optimism. When we think that good things are personal, I'm responsible for them. They're pervasive. You know, this is, I'm, it's going to, it's good. It's going to be good all around or, you know, permanent. This is always going to happen this way. We feel great. We feel optimistic. We feel good about the future. When we feel the bad things are personal, it's my fault. 
It's pervasive. This negative thing is going to affect every area of my life, and it's permanent. I can't change it. We feel terrible. So it's really a matter of listening to the thoughts in your head, you know, listening to that self-talk. We all, we all talk about, we all say about 300 to about 300 to 1,000 words approximately to ourselves every minute. And we, we, need to say, we need to look at that and say to yourself, what kind of story am I telling myself? Mm-hmm. Is this one where the good things are personal, pervasive, and permanent, or the bad things per- personal, pervasive, and permanent? And how can I adjust, argue with uh, those thoughts and try and adjust them so the positive uh, has the three Ps uh, and the negatives don't have the three Ps? Because when you feel optimistic about the future, uh, you're much more likely to be engaged. And when you feel pessimistic, well, hey, what's the point? Yeah. And you use some very powerful examples in this chapter. And Certain examples where I don't think any of us listening right now could even come close to understanding what it's like, but your examples with the Navy SEAL and the kind of training they go through and why certain people succeed going through the training where other people don't and how important optimism is, how important that positive self-talk is. And that really helps clarify and crystallize the importance of optimism, the importance of positive self-talk in order to get through such trials, such as the training that they go through. And when you read it, it's just, man, it's horrific. Like it sounds like they're just, they're drowning and their, their, their trainers are trying to almost kill them, it seems. But how some of these guys get through it is because of the things you already mentioned. And uh, I really, really love that. And another cool th- takeaway from that chapter as well that I really liked that I myself use and after reading your book I started to make more of a conscious effort to do that but turn things into a game so I'm a sales marketing strategy innovation guy and for me when I'm doing sales calls for example I make it a game I when I wake up in the morning I say well you know how do I make this fun how do I make this a game you know I got to call 25 people before the time's up or before the day's up and that's my my goal and I turn it into a game to make it more exciting and you pose questions to say Hey, why is it that people love playing video games so much? They come home and they love playing video games. They love playing board games. Despite the fact that they're difficult, there's a lot of failure in there. Why do people look forward to that, but yet they don't enjoy work? Because they take the games out of work. So if you put a game into your work, then, you know, maybe it becomes a little bit more fun. And that's something that I can attest to. And I truly loved it. So there's, like I said, man, there's so many different pieces from each chapter. And for me, those two things really stood out as well. So for Golden, awesome. so for golden Nugget number four... This is one that we hear all the time coming up to university. So for all you university students, college students out there, you hear this one all the time. It's not what you know, it's who you know. So can you help us understand some of the truth behind this maxim? Yeah, I mean, what you see there is across the board, there's no doubt uh, having a big network matters. You know, it's, it's incredibly valuable. I even, I even show the research on drug dealers. Mm-hmm. And drug dealers with bigger networks make more money and are less <laughs> likely to be incarcerated. Um, you know, across the board, you know, a big network matters. And that would seem to say, hey, you know, uh, we should just focus on, on who you know. But on the flip side, there was actually some research, and it's, it's in academic jargon. It was something like level of ex- levels of extroversion are inversely correlated with individual proficiency or something like that, which basically <laughs> means... The more extroverted you are, the worse you are at your job. <laughs> and, and that's not because extroverts are, are dumber or inferior or anything like that. It's just the issue of, hey, if you're spending a lot of time with your friends, as we all might be able to attest to from college, if you're spending a lot of time hanging out, you know, you're not spending as much time on that Excel spreadsheet or in mm-hmm. the batting cage or on your golf swing or so whatever true. you're doing. And so what you see at the extremes 
you know, which can help us help us understand the whole system, is that extroverts have a fantastic advantage uh, in many areas. And you see extroverts, you know, generally make more money or generally, you know, more more career successful. And uh, extroverts are happier. In fact, some of the most damning evidence is there is research that shows that when introverts pretend to be extroverts, they're happier. You know, that that's really powerful stuff. On the flip side, when you look at introverts, when you're not, you know, spending all your time going to parties, uh, you've got a lot more time, if you choose, to be good at your job. So and across many areas, you know, introverts are more likely to be experts in their field. They're more likely to be the best at what they do. And, when you know, you look across the board, um, you know, Introverts are far more likely to have PhDs. Uh, they're far more likely to have Phi Beta Kappa keys. Mm -hmm. uh, you can generally, uh, just knowing whether, all the things being equal, knowing whether someone is an introvert or an extrovert actually predicts grades. Um, and, and this was one that really surprised me, was when you look at top-performing athletes, you see a grossly disproportionate number of introverts, even on team sports, uh, because, again, you know, you're if you're not out partying with your friends, you got more time in the batting cage. You, you know, you got more time to run a few sprints, uh, you know, before the sun goes down. So we have this balance here where, you know, extroverts do have the power of networks and networks are huge for not only getting jobs, but getting promoted. Um, you know, but introverts have that time if they use it to be better at, at what they do. So, you know, again, it's not so much. And those are fundamental personality traits. Uh, you know, uh, now granted, a large number of people fall into the middle ground, which is called their ambiverts, that they're not extreme extroverts, they're not extreme introverts. Mm -hmm. For those people, it's a matter of looking at the situation and saying, which side of myself do I really need to bring out here? You know, I'm at a I'm at a work mixer. I need to be extroverted. The report needs to get done by Friday. It's time to shut the door and, you know, and uh, and, and knuckle, you know, knuckle down, really, really put some effort into this. But for people who are extroverts, introverts, this is extroversion, introversion is probably the most fundamental personality trait and one of the, the most studied. You are probably not going to dramatically change your level of introversion and extroversion. So again, it falls into that issue of knowing who you are and knowing your environment and what that rewards. Mm -hmm. So, hey, if you know if you're going to be in a if you're going to be in public relations or if you're going to be a, you know uh, somebody who is uh, business <laughs> development who's constantly going to be having to deal with other people. You know, might not be a great choice if you're an introvert, might be a great choice if you're an extrovert. And on the flip side, if you're going to be, you know, a, a, a lab researcher uh, or I don't know, maybe a guy who writes a blog and a book, uh, you know, <laughs> in, introversion, you know, an extrovert is going to have, a, you know, might have a lot of trouble struggling to sit down in the chair, yeah. the discipline of the chair, sitting down in the chair for that many hours and doing that lonely work. So, again, who are you mm -hmm. picking the right pond? Getting those two aligned is really critical, even in the area of what you know and who you know. There's that big takeaway, and each chapter is going to help you learn a little bit more about that. So, for example, in this chapter, you know, for uh, my salespeople listening right now, you know, for top salespeople, they're actually in the middle of that introversion extroversion spectrum, and uh, you know, it's it's it's. To me, it's all about truly understanding yourself, and through each chapter, you'll get a better understanding of yourself as you more or less put yourself in the place of, um, uh, of these examples and these, uh, these anecdotes that you're sharing with us. And in this chapter in particular, you go into a lot more detail in terms of um, some important tips and advice when it comes to networking, when it comes to um, how to find mentors, or when it comes to negotiation, for example. So again, another rich chapter, really rich. 
the or the fifth golden nugget actually we have believe in yourself sometimes the difference between confidence and delusion so we always hear about this you know fake it before you make it or believe in yourself and you can achieve anything is this true help us understand the truth behind this maxim well this is another one where you know, it's it's kind of tricky. Like I said, putting the, setting setting this up like a legal case, uh, the dialectic uh, is is uh, is uh, <clears throat> uh, patting myself on the back. It's quite a revolutionary <laughs> idea because you don't you don't see too many books uh, titled "How to Be Less Confident." Uh, you don't see too many people running around saying, "How can I, I, I how can I be less confident in myself?" You know, you never hear that. You never hear that. And part of it's a semantic issue where you know we we saying you have low confidence. You know, we're oh my God, well, you need to see a therapist. Uh, but we're all very quick to respect humility, and mm-hmm. we think humility is a great thing. And on the other hand, we we prize confidence, we prize self esteem. However, we 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 loathe uh, narcissism and hubris. Mm-hmm. And this is the thing we need to keep in mind: is that at the one extreme of confidence, we have narcissism and hubris, and at the other extreme, we do have humility. And what you see when you look at the research is people who have too high of self esteem, who are too confident, um, you know, often end up either delusional or as a jerk, <laughs> because <laughs> you know, if if you think you are better than you are, trust me. Your eventually reality is eventually going to punch you in the face, you know. Re- re- much like the the, st- the stock market, you know, re- reality reality has some great <laughs> corrective mechanisms for when you have deluded visions of of the world. And the second factor is people who feel confident, who feel powerful. Um, you know, the when that gets too out of hand, um, you see all kinds of negative results from the personality research, where people who feel too powerful, too much self esteem, uh, lack empathy, uh, they devalue others. Uh, and they, they don't treat people well. And we've, we've seen this, you know, we've all seen this across the board with abusive bosses or, or, uh, temperamental celebrities or, or people who have too much. So, you know, going too too much confidence is a bad thing. And, you know, too little confidence, now too little confidence, obviously, if you're not getting out of bed in the morning, it's a problem, totally. you know, but the idea of being humble, those people are able to learn because when you don't learn, you know, the research shows, you know, the people who, become experts, make a natural shift. When people start out trying anything, they want to hear positive feedback because if they don't, they quit. But as you move towards the path to expertise, what the, the, what the studies show is you start to focus on negative feedback. You want to hear the bad so you can improve. So the people who have humility, who are not super high on self-confidence, are listening for the bad and they can hear it. And we all know the egotistic people who can't hear it and ignore everything negative. Mm-hmm. So we need a little bit of that. But the problem ends up being that the question is wrong. The self-confidence paradigm seems to be inherently problematic because it's always either delusional or it's contingent. We, you know, it's contingent. We always feel like we need to do something to prove ourselves. And this just keeps us on this treadmill of having to prove ourselves, having to slay, wake up and slay a dragon every day. <laughs> and this puts us on a roller coaster of emotions. And so what it looks like might actually be the better answer is, and this is not from modern research initially, this goes back over a thousand years to Buddhism, is the idea of self-compassion. And recent research on self-compassion by Christian Neff at University of Texas at Austin shows that self-compassion might be the better paradigm, where instead of building your your self-image up to unreasonable proportions and potentially turning yourself into a jerk who doesn't listen, it's the idea of having a much more realistic attitude towards the world and focusing on forgiving yourself. You're human. 
forgiving yourself when you fail rather than giving yourself this mm. illusory vision of who you are. And when you look at the research, these people uh, you know, have all, there's all the benefits of self-confidence. They feel good about themselves. However, the correlation with narcissism is nearly zero. Mm. These people are able to learn. They're able to listen. They forgive themselves when they fail. And, and a big thing that many people are concerned about is like, will they lose their edge? And the truth is that we always think, oh my God, it's that confidence that propels me forward. Mm -hmm. And to some degree that's true, but you have to look at the flip side, which is what holds you back, the fear. And when you are compassionate, to with yourself, when you know I can forgive myself for failure, that gets rid of the fear as well. Mm -hmm. So people who are self-compassionate don't lose their edge. They don't play it safe or too safe because they know, hey, if I screw up, it's okay. Mm -hmm. I'm human. So we, we need to focus a little less on, on confidence and a little more on self-compassion. Oh, absolutely. And this one talks to me, and I know it talks to a lot of you out there as well, too, because I shared a story on the podcast many episodes ago where I talked about how when I was an entrepreneur, um, you know, I like to put myself sort of in this box. And I, you know, I essentially believe that my shit didn't stink. You know, I knew everything about everything when it came to marketing, when it came to sales. And why? Because I was working in isolation and I was going to clients and they, were, they had no idea um, you know, how to develop a marketing strategy, a marketing program, a sales system, what have you. And I would go in there and I would know everything. And they were just like, oh my God, I'm in awe. And I like to stay in my bubble. But then I realized at some point, I'm like, you know what? There's so many people out there who are way smarter than me. And when I started hanging around them, man, did they put me in my place. And that was a hit to the ego. It was a hit to the ego and it made me very uncomfortable because I said, I thought I knew everything. You know, I was delusional to think that I knew everything and that I, I had it all figured out. So it was at that moment where I shifted and I said, you know what, like you don't know everything. Get outside of your box and start working with, again, goes back to the last chapter, start work, working with mentors, people who know more than you, people who have gone further, done more, uh, who have made more mistakes and really put it, it, that lesson made me a better marketer, made me a better sales professional. I experienced way more failure, way more pain, but um, I'm telling you, that also upped my confidence. Well, I want to I jump in here because just Please. exactly what you were saying, you, you, uh, before, to, to all the listeners, before we started recording the podcast, we were, we, uh, we were, we were both talking about our experiences in martial arts. That's right. And, um, you know, and I, I got to say, it was like, you know, it, one thing that was great for me was I always used to make sure because you'd, you'd partner up and you'd train with probably, you know, whoever, whoever was next to you, whoever's mm -hmm. nearby. And very quickly, I would identify I was doing Krav Maga. Who were who were the black belts? And I would just and as soon as we walk into the room, I would just make sure I'm standing next to them. Yep. I'm standing next to them. And <laughs> and routinely, I looked terrible because I always was trying to partner up with the most experienced people possible and I was consistently getting the crap kicked out of me and just looking horrendous and just getting injured. I was always embarrassed and you know and other people didn't know who the black belts were all they knew was Eric looks incompetent you know it's just I was constantly getting the crap kicked out of me and and it was hysterical because people would take this very sympathetic tone towards, oh, Eric, you just keep working. Maybe you'll get better. <laughs> and the funny thing was I kept improving by leaps and bounds. Mm -hmm. And when I would end up training and sparring with these other people, they'd be, who is this guy? And it was, it was great because you know, I wasn't afraid of being embarrassed. And I focused on, just like you were saying, it's like being surrounded by working with people who are far better than I was. Check your ego. Train with oh, the people yeah. who are the best. You're not going to look cool, but you are going to be cool oh, at man. the end of the day. There we go, baby. That's what I'm talking about. That's a great story there. And for anyone who doesn't know, I didn't know this about, about you either. But uh, for those people who don't know, 
This man's a fight fan. And not only is he a fight fan, but uh, back in his day, he was doing a lot of rolling, a lot of sparring with some uh, some big name guys. And right now I'm looking at a little picture of uh, Rampage Jackson holding you in a rear naked choke on, on your Skype picture. <laughs> well, well, you're you're the one who used to compete. I didn't compete. I had some I had some fun. And let me tell you, being in that being in that rear naked, that was like having your head in a vice. Oh um, I've God. I've never that was that was, I did. I, I was ready to tap as soon as I felt. <laughs> that uh I, I didn't want to be there i would have just sent in a video of me tapping no and not even come like no but it, it's it's some fun stuff and you you learn a lot of lessons speaking of reality punching in the face um you know you you, you learn a lot of stuff really fast there are a lot of valuable lessons that come from it hey man that's absolutely right a lot of the times one of my uh, coaches used to say that in the gym here it's like a microcosm for life in that uh you know you, you you get knocked down how many times you get back up and the same thing goes out there in life and i think that you know especially with training i mean i don't I, we can go on a tangent about this for a long time but you know when you get knocked down man there's so many lessons that you learn in the gym that you can apply to life whether it's failure whether it's progressing and i think you know your example right there was just proof of just one of many examples but uh let's crack into the very last golden nugget here from the book that we took away here and that's chapter six work 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 a work-life balance so when we talk about work-life balance it's actually it's not a, not, a, not an old concept it's a rather new concept that really started to appear in you know around the late 80s um and it's about really creating that harmony with your home and work so as much as we try to win this work-life battle, it's a struggle that many of us are losing today. So can you give anybody out there who's listening right now any advice in terms of how we can win that battle? No, I mean, like you said, it's a really, it's a really new idea. And that's what's critical here is that the reason work-life balance has become an issue is – the world used to have boundaries. The world, the office used to close at 5 p.m. We didn't used to have cell phones, text messaging, and email, you know, available with us everywhere and available 24/7. We didn't have all the documents in the cloud accessible 24/7. So in the past, the boundaries were created for us. So hey, at 5 p.m., you go home, you see your friends, you spend time with your kids. You know, you, you do that because it was clearly delineated and prescribed for us. The problem now is, hey, we all love options. You know, we have options. But, the, the, but now, all of a sudden, what before was a rule provided for us is now the onus has been shifted on us. Because now you can always fire up the laptop and work at 10 p.m. You can always take that, uh, check your work email and start replying to it. So it becomes a decision. Mm -hmm. You have to decide not to work. And that's tricky because the reason it's tricky is because when you look at the research, what it shows is, yes, more ceteris paribus, all the things being equal. When you spend more time, you do better. You know, mm -hmm. if, if you're doing the right thing, you spend more time, you do better. And the most uh, accomplished, powerful people are usually workaholics. You know, we, we've heard this and it's supported by, uh, by, by plenty of studies. So when you, so it, this, this sets up a very dangerous formula where working more produces results. And now we've take the gov, we've taken the governor off the engine. You can work 24 seven. And the meanwhile, TV and, and the internet is showing us, you know, the top 0.001% of successful people. So we have these outsized expectations we know that working harder produces more results, and we can work 24-7, so we should so should we so choose. Boom. What do you have? You have a prescription for, uh, for workaholism, and that's, that's what we've gotten to. And what the really critical thing here is is that you have to make that decision yourself, and that's scary because that means 
That means saying either, hey, I need to spend time with my family. And if that means that, you know, me, me leaving the office at 5 or 6 p.m. means I'm not going to get that promotion, I'm okay with that. Mm-hmm. Or saying, hey, I want that promotion. I'm going to stay here till 9 tonight. And if that means that my wife leaves me, well, okay, I'm okay with that. <laughs> I mean, you know, you, the, you, the onus is on us. The decision needs to be made by us, and we have to face the consequences, as opposed to in the past, people were able to shrug and say, hey, the office, the lights are out. The office is closing. I can't work anymore. <laughs> it's not my fault. You know, so that and then the issue of the, some of the common mistakes people make. In this, uh, you, you see some of, the, some of the research shows basically that a lot of people, mistake they make is uh, you know, what is called a collapsing metric. Mm-hmm. And basically what that means is to, to evaluate their life, they use one metric, one number. And of course, we can generally assume what that number is. It's usually money because money is easy to count. And so we just say make the number go up. And when you just say make the number go up, you know, hey, that doesn't that doesn't account for your health, for your relationships and relationships are what usually takes the brunt uh, of the, the problem here. But if you're not thinking about your health, you're not thinking about your relationships, you're not thinking about your happiness. You're just thinking about make the number go up. That's problematic. You can't have one metric for a successful life. On the other side, what you see is people try to do what's called a, a sequencing strategy, which is. Okay, right now I'm going to ignore my health and happiness and relationships, but I'm going to work real hard. And I'm, going to, I'm going to graduate from the top school. And then I'm going to ignore my health and happiness, and I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to make a bunch of money. And then I'm just going to focus on my relationships. I'm only going to focus on my relationships, and, I'm going to, and life doesn't work like that. You know, relationships can't be sequenced. You know, you need to consistently – you can't vanish for 10 years and pop up again and expect everybody to love you. You know, and same thing with your health, and I don't even think I need to explain that one. Mm-hmm. But – but so what Nash and Stevenson, two researchers at Harvard, came up with when they looked at people who had some approximation of work-life balance, they found that people focused on four arenas. They had four metrics. And what those were were happiness, achievement, significance, and legacy. Happiness, pretty obvious. Are you enjoying what you're doing? Significance is what you're doing providing a benefit to others. Achievement, hey, are you making your are you getting your goals, getting promoted, making money, getting ahead? And legacy to some degree or another, is what you're doing making the world a better place? Are you benefiting the people around you? And when you look at your schedule, it's probably the best way to do it. Look at your week, look at your month. Making sure that you're making deposits in all four of those, happiness, mm-hmm. achievement, significance, legacy, that's when you can start to develop a well-rounded life. Because what you're going to find, what everybody probably finds, is that you're putting too much in one bucket, not enough in another bucket. Hey, happiness, I'm having fun, I'm having fun, and <laughs> I just got fired. Uh, or... Maybe, you, maybe you're happy with what you're doing. Maybe you're achieving with what you're doing. But maybe you're not you know, providing benefit to your loved ones, and maybe you're not making the world a better place. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a very short-term strategy. So we need to be thinking about happiness, achievement, significance, and legacy on a regular basis, weekly, monthly, making deposits in each one. And you know, the, the, the degree to which bucket you deposit in, is, that's a personal thing. But you want an even balance there. That can start to get us towards, towards work-life balance. Definitely. And that goes back to what you mentioned at the very beginning, come full circle. It, the whole message about this book really comes down to, you know, choosing which pond you want to, you want to be in. And for this one in particular, you know, I mean, if, if you're working a job where you want more work-life balance, however, you know, you're working in an area where it requires, you know, 10 to 12 hour days and it's not what you want, then at that point you have to have this sort of come to Jesus moment with yourself and say, is this really what I want to do? Is this truly what makes, you know, Ryan happy? Is this what makes Eric happy? 
and you have to make some hard decisions. And what do you value in life? And I think that last point there, um, you know, I think that's a great, great tip for people to really use that filter to um, evaluate their day, evaluate what they're doing. And uh, if it's not fulfilling for you, then maybe it's time to change. And that's what I really like about this chapter is that it really challenged um, certain individuals or perhaps you're not in the right space. And you are thinking about, you know, well, there's some positives to working where I am. The money's great. And, you know, I, I, you know, well, I guess just the money's great. But the other hand, my health is kind of going. I have less time for working out, less time for my family, less time for relationships, less time in my social setting. I'm not feeling, uh, feeling fulfilled by the work. You know, I'm making my bosses rich, but what am I doing for my own life? You know, so this chapter really tried to make sense of it for, for, for those folks out there. And if there's people out there listening right now, um, this chapter in particular uh, might talk to you uh, quite a bit. But that, my friend, that is Barking Up the Wrong Tree, the surprising signs behind why everything you know about success is mostly wrong. Eric Barker, my man, I really enjoyed this, uh, this interview. You are a blast. The energy is awesome. And uh, I greatly appreciate you coming on the show. Oh, Ryan, it's been a lot of fun, man. I really appreciate you having me on. Hey, thanks so much, man. Hey, real quick, uh, do a quick plug for uh, for uh, for your website there in case people uh, aren't, aren't following along yet. I know he's got a very successful website, very su- successful blog. What are you up to now, like 300,000 subscribers? So yeah. impressive. Yeah, it, uh, yeah, I've got a weird URL, so the, the smartest thing to do is just Google uh, Barking Up the Wrong Tree blog or Google my name, Eric Barker, and uh, best way to keep up with what I'm doing, I you know, I, I give the latest uh, information from from academic research and from experts, but I make it readable and hopefully entertaining. Uh, you know, sign up for my weekly email, um, you know, once a week, and I give the latest uh, on all kinds of, you know, self-improvement areas from happiness, productivity, success, relationships, etc. And uh, yeah, and the book is a Wall Street Journal bestseller. Uh, check it out on Amazon, Barking Up the Wrong Tree. Beautiful. My friend, thank you so much again for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Ryan. All right, there we have it. That's Barking Up the Wrong Tree, the surprising science behind why everything you know about success is mostly wrong by Eric Barker. Really enjoyed this interview. Really enjoyed talking to the man. And uh, hopefully there are some golden nuggets here that you can take away and uh, that might have an impact on you and your life, your career perhaps. For me, every single week when I bring you a book, I don't know what book that's going to be. It could be this one. It could be last week's. It could be next week's. I'm not too sure. But all I know is that whenever I bring content to you, one of these books is going to strike you in the chest and perhaps have a profound impact on your life. And to me, knowing that it could be one of these books, that's what keeps me going. That's what keeps me going. So i got to cut this short again. My throat is killing me. It's on fire, guys. But um, very quickly, don't forget to get your entry in for this quarter's prize, the MacBook Air. If you have some time, rate and review the show. Send me that uh, screen capture so that it shows me that you, you know, rate and review the show. Send it to me by email, ryan.calajuri at me.com, and you're entered into the draw. And thank you to everybody who's already done that. Don't forget to give me a quick follow on social media, especially LinkedIn, uh, Instagram, and Facebook. You guys can stay up to date with me and um, see what the heck I'm doing all week. And uh, to me, it's just a great way to stay connected with, uh, with all the listeners of the podcast. So don't forget to give me a follow. But that's a wrap, my friends. Thank you so much again for joining me on another episode of Cut the Crap Podcast. I will catch you back here next week when I have a brand new book, brand new Golden Nuggets, and of course the author interview to talk about the book, talk about the Golden Nuggets. Until next week, my friends, stay inspired, stay productive, and I'll catch you next week. Take it easy. I love you guys. So light
Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you to the Academy for this, all 6,000 members. Thank you to the other nominees. Uh, all these performances were impeccable, in my opinion. I didn't see a false note anywhere. I want to thank Jean-Marc Vallée, our director. I want to thank Chad Leto, Jennifer Garner, who I worked with daily. Um, there's a few things, about three things to my account, that I need each day. Um, one of them is something to look up to, another is something to look forward to, and another is someone to chase. Now, first off, I want to thank God, because that's who I look up to. He's graced my life with opportunities that I know are not of my hand or any other human hand. Um, he has shown me that uh, it's a scientific fact that gratitude reciprocates. Um, in the words of the late Charlie Lawton, who said, when you got God, you got a friend, and that friend is you. Um, to my family, that's who and what I look forward to. To my father, who I know is up there right now, with a big pot of gumbo. He's got a lemon meringue pie over there. He's probably in his underwear, and he's got a cold can of Miller Lite, and he's dancing right now. <laughs> to you, Dad, you taught me what it means to be a man. To my mother, who's here tonight, who taught me and my two older brothers demanded that we respect ourselves. And what we, in turn, learned was then we were better able to respect others. Thank you for that, Mama. To my wife, Camilla, and my kids, Levi, Vita, and Mr. Stone, the courage and significance you give me every day I go out the door is unparalleled. You are the four people in my life that I want to make the most proud of me. Thank you. And to um, my hero, that's who I chase. Now, when I was 15 years old, I had a very important person in my life come to me and say, who's your hero? And I said, I don't know, I gotta think about that. Give me a couple of weeks. I come back two weeks later, this person comes up and says, who's your hero? I said, I thought about it. You know who it is? I said, it's me in 10 years. So I turned 25, 10 years later. That same person comes to me and goes, so are you a hero? And I was like, not even close. No, no, no. She said, why? I said, because my hero is me at 35. So you see, every day, every week, every month, and every year of my life, my hero is always 10 years away. I'm never going to be my hero. I'm not going to attain that. I know I'm not. And that's just fine with me, because that keeps me with somebody to keep on chasing. So to any of us, whatever those things are, whatever it is we look up to, whatever it is we look forward to and whoever it is we're chasing. To that I say amen. To that I say all right, all right, all right. And to that I say just keep living, huh? Thank you.